A reading from Luke 2, 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The Gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, uh, we ask that you will uh, make your, yourself vivid to us. We ask that you will be very active among us right now. Will you, uh, we recognize your Holy Spirit is already at work. Uh, has been at work long before we even arrived here, and yet, in a remarkable way, you, you you have a unique way of working when the people are when your people are gathered um, and when we are all together considering your word. So, will you do that unique work now? Will you uh, specify, particularize your word to each one of us, and will you grant us uh, to walk out of here? Um, surrendered to you in a deeper way and equipped to represent you in a greater way. So please do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, have a seat. Um, and uh, turn back to that second reading, and somebody's going to say, oh my goodness, Jim, you are kidding me. It's October. Why are we reading this in October? Which is a, uh, a, a good thing to ask, but here's the reason. One of the biggest re obstacles to understanding, internalizing, wrestling with this reading is Christmas. Um, and the reason for that is that um, we, we, almost, we, and we always read this reading around Christmas, and so it's familiar, right? But on the other hand, we almost only ever read this reading at Christmas. And therefore, for a lot of us, this reading about the shepherds and the angels and the manger and all that stuff, it, it bears the kind of 
um, fog of sentimentality that accompanies Christmas a lot of the times. And I'm not trying to throw Christmas under the bus, but I'm just trying to say that the familiarity that we have with this text and the sentimentality we have of, with Christmas conspire together to kind of sabotage a close uh, reading of this story. And therefore, we're reading it now self-consciously, not reading it uh, in the context of Christmas, but reading it just as we are unfolding this story of Luke. And one of the things that, that I think that this allows us to discover, what I hope we can discover today, is that there's nothing sentiment sentimental about this reading. It's actually really subversive. How is this reading subversive? Well, I'm going to tell you in a few minutes. But it's subversive in a way and to such an extent that if there's a way in which we haven't really wrestled with it and taken it seriously until we find it just a little bit offensive or at least challenging. And I think we're going to discover that. But I also want to show you that not only does this reading uh, subvert something that a lot of us, all of us, take very seriously, it subverts us, but it also exalts us. It, this reading, if we read it closely, it'll first subvert something, but then secondly, it'll, it'll give us a new kind of dignity at the very same moment and actually for the same reason. Now, Jim, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes, fine. Come with me into the text, and I want to show you how it's subversive, but also how it uh, elevates us with a dignity that we can't have otherwise. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, I want to show you that the gospel uh, subverts human autonomy. Take a look at verse 10. This is the angel's message to the shepherds. You all know the story, so I don't have to go into it in a great deal. In fact, some of you have been the angel in this reading, or the shepherd, or the sheep, or whatever. And I'm sure you were very, very amazing to your parents. Um, but anyways, so you, you, you know, sorry, so the, the, the angel, or the, the shepherds are hanging out uh, in, in the field, um, and it's the middle of the night, and they're minding their own business. And then all of a sudden, an angel shows up and scares them to death. Uh, and then verse 10, take a look at verse 10. The angel says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, that message from the angel is what we call a gospel. Um, the word gospel is an, just a terribly churchy word. Uh, and a lot of us, even, in, even if you've been around Christianity for a long time, don't really have a clear grasp of what it means. But the basic meaning is just this. The gospel, or a gospel, is a public announcement that changes the lives of everyone to whom it is addressed. What do I mean? Well, we had an example just like two or three weeks ago. Uh, do you remember when the queen died? Uh, immediately, there was a, a, new, a new king in, in Britain. And I don't know if you noticed this, uh, but if you followed it, in Britain... Uh, in England and Scotland, in Wales and Northern Ireland, and then all over the, uh, the Commonwealth, there were people uh, who, in, usually dressed in, in very uh, interesting um, clothing, got up and there were literal, and they, that's a trumpet. 
Um, and they said, you know, almost like, hear ye, hear ye, there's a new king. Now, that's, in the ancient, ancient world, we would have called that a gospel. It's a public announcement that changes the lives and the situation of everyone to whom it is addressed. Now, go back to verse 10, because the angel's message is a gospel. This is not just an announcement of a birth. This is not just, it's a boy. Um, this is the announcement of the arrival of a king. And this is where you begin to see how the gospel the angels announce is a subversive gospel. Why is it subversive, Jim? Thank you for asking. Because the angels' gospel is not the first gospel in our reading. Take a look at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, that's not just describing the setting. Uh, that is setting up a conflict. Why? Well, consider Caesar Augustus. So Augustus, uh, Augustus was not just a, like a normal political leader, like we think of it. Uh, Augustus was a political leader with kind of semi-divine uh, authority. And subsequent generations, like, endowed him with, like, proper divine authority. Let me read you an, an inscription that we have from the time. And this, it almost reads like another gospel. Listen to this. The divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and the savior of the whole world. Now, imagine you're an ancient Roman, and, and so what comes to your mind when you think about Caesar Augustus is not just, yeah, he happens to be our, you know, political leader at the moment. No, no, no. Uh, what comes to your mind is, oh, Augustus, <laughs> yeah, son of a god, savior of the world, lord of all. And then imagine that you sit down and you read the Gospel of Luke for the first time, and you get to verse 10. And you realize the angel is announcing that a child has been born, but not just a child. A child has been born unto you. That's, that's king language. Um, this king, this child will bring uh, joy to the whole world. He's a descendant of David. He's born in David's uh, town. He's the savior. He's going to rescue the world. He's the Messiah. He's the king of Israel. He's the Lord which means he has a comprehensive authority. Now, if you're thinking as like an ancient Roman, you're going to read that, you're going to hear the angel's gospel, and immediately in your mind, you're going to put Jesus up against Augustus, and you're going to ask the question, which king is the real king, and who's the imposter? Which authority is authentic and which authority is a parody? Because one of them's got to be. And that's the question that the Gospel of Luke wants us to ask. But here's the thing. Luke, the writer, is already smuggling in the answer. What do I mean? Well, take a look at verse 1 again. Augustus issues this decree. Everyone's got to be registered. And uh, this was a census uh, for the whole empire. And, and the point was so that he could tax. Um, it was a way of consolidating his power. 
extending his power, exerting his power, and you notice that he presumptuously claims that he has power over the whole world. But the weird thing is, what Luke wants us to see, is that his decree, his, so to speak, gospel, facilitates something that Augustus doesn't expect. His decree forces Mary and Joseph, who did not live in Bethlehem, it forces them to travel to Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus is born. Why is it important that Jesus is born in Bethlehem? It's super important because the Old Testament anticipated that the Messiah, God's Messiah, when he showed up, would hail from Bethlehem. The, the point is, Luke wants us to see that Caesar's grasp for power ended up playing right into the hands of a better king. Now, can you begin to see the subversion here? The angel's gospel is designed to, be, to show that Augustus is an imposter. Augustus is a parody. Augustus, with all of his pomp and his power, is guilty of a kind of divine identity theft. The real king is a kid that hails from Bethlehem. Okay, but now slow down. Because Je Jesus here is subverting the arrival of Jesus. The gospel about Jesus subverts uh, Caesar's claim to divine authority. But it also subverts something of our own autonomy as readers. Let me explain what I mean here. Um, I just used the word identity theft. Did you catch that? Divine identity theft. Um, this is one of the ways to think about how sin works. Lots of different ways to think about sin works, but w one way to think about sin is this. Sin, in the Bible, is when humans grasp onto power and autonomy and control that by rights belong to God, but we try to grasp it from him. We, so to speak, try to steal God's identity. And the Bible is full of examples. So um, you can think of uh, the story of Adam and Eve. Why, um, why does Adam and Eve, uh, why do they disobey God? It's not really fundamentally because, man, that piece of fruit was just amazing. That's not really the main thing. What the main thing was is that they wanted to be like God. They wanted to place themselves in the position of God, particularly his place of authority. They wanted God's authority for themselves. They wanted uh, autonomy from God for themselves, especially over uh, ethics, telling right from wrong. It was a kind of identity theft. Or you can think about uh, Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Um, uh, why does Pharaoh of Egypt in the book of Exodus and the Lord of Israel just go head to head in a collision? Well, Pharaoh in the story claims ultimate autonomous authority. And that's why he thinks it's legitimate for him to enslave the people of Israel. And the whole story, at least the first part of the book of Exodus, is how the Lord of Israel, God, disabuses Pharaoh of that idea and says, Israel's not your slave, Israel's my son. The point is, sin, among other things, 
is when we grasp power and autonomy that really belongs to God, but we, we grasp it for ourselves, and it's a kind of identity theft. And Luke is unmasking Caesar's identity theft. He's not the real Lord of all, says Luke. This little kid is. But in doing that, and this is where it gets uncomfortable. Everybody take a deep breath. Okay. In doing that, he, he's undermining our own claim to autonomy. Um, there's a writer called uh, Yuval Harari. He's a secular atheist, um, historian, public thinker. He wrote a book called Homo Deus. Usually we call humanity, um, you know, homo sapiens, wise human. Um, he, his book is called Homo Deus, which is uh, humanity um, divine, something like that. And, uh, and his, idea, his, his idea is that human, modern humanity has uh, acquired so much power that uh, we acquire, we've acquired power previously um, thought to be divine. And, and he analyzes modernity in this way. Just listen. He says, modernity is a deal. And the entire contract can be summarized in a single phrase. Humans agree to give up meaning in exchange for power. On the practical level, modern life consists of a constant pursuit of power within a universe devoid of meaning. Modern culture is the most powerful in history. It is ceaselessly researching and inventing and discovering and growing. At the same time, it is plagued by more existential angst than at any previous culture in history. Now, What's interesting here is, is he says uh, humanity has acquired power uh, that, is, that was previously thought to be reserved for divinity. But in doing so, it hasn't led to a kind of utopia. Uh, in fact, it's led to a great amount of existential angst, but also, later on, he argues that it may well contribute to our extinction. Now, Harari wants nothing to do with Christianity, but he diagnoses something within us that we need to see. We are often guilty of a kind of divine identity theft. We grasp for autonomy. We grasp for power over our lives. We do that at a societal level. We do that at a political level. But we also do that at an individual level. The problem is that our grasping for autonomy and power, it doesn't really work because we were not designed to bear that identity. And it leaves us confused and distressed and imperiled. And the angel's gospel unveils Jesus as God's rightful king, but at the same time, in doing that, it also unmasks us as imposters. Emmanuel, the gospel subverts our grasp upon our own autonomy, and that's got to make us a little uncomfortable. Am I wrong? But here's the, but then, let's keep going, because not only does the gospel subvert our autonomy, but at the same time, the gospel also elevates and dignifies humanity in an unexpected way. Go back to the story and think about the shepherds now. Because the shepherds are kind of like the opposite of Caesar. Caesar is presumptuous. Caesar places himself in the position of God. But the shepherds are different because they're humble. They're kind of nobody. 
But can you see how things change? They begin almost like nobodies, but they end as privileged ambassadors of a great king. Look at the story. And as you look at the story, think about the concept of being an ambassador. Uh, an ambassador shares the dignity of the authority the ambassador represents, right? Uh, but the ambassador shares the dignity, like if, you know, an ambassador from the United States someplace else uh, uh, shares in the dignity of the United States. But an ambassador does that without any kind of identity theft because a good ambassador uh, doesn't have autonomous authority. A good ambassador submits to the authority that the ambassador is representing and represents that authority wherever he or she is. Why am I talking about ambassadors? Because this story is all about ambassadors. The angels are ambassadors of God. They proclaim the gospel of a new king. And actually the word angel can be translated ambassador. But then the shepherds take up the same role. Can you see that? The shepherds end up taking on the same dignity. They hear the gospel from the angels and then they get up, they go to Bethlehem and they do the same thing the angels did. They tell the same gospel to Mary and Joseph. And it is a remarkable thing that Mary, of all people, Mary gets to hear the gospel, needs to hear the gospel from a group of shepherds. The point is the shepherds become ambassadors and therefore they bear the dignity of the king whom they represent. They have no social status in themselves, but they end up bearing a little share, uh, share of God's own dignity. And it turns out that God, Emmanuel, has always wanted to share that kind of dignity with humanity. I don't have time for all the details, but if you go back to the book of Genesis, when God originally created humanity, it says that God created humanity in his own image. What does that mean? Many things, but it includes that humanity from the very beginning was intended to serve as God's ambassadors, God's representatives on earth, so that humanity was supposed to share in God's dignity by representing God in such a manner that this world could flourish. The tragedy is that sin canceled that dignity. Sin grasped onto autonomy and authority that was not ours, and in doing so, ironically, canceled the dignity for which we were made. And we are left no longer as ambassadors, but as imposters. But the gospel changes that. Because the gospel is the announcement that changes everything for those to whom it is addressed. The gospel is that Jesus is God's king that he's God in person. There's no identity theft with Jesus because he is literally God in person. There's no sin in him. And he is the one who calls all of us to surrender our autonomy before him, which is a difficult task. But Jesus's aim is not to cut us down, but to lift us up. He, Jesus restores us to the dignity for which we were made. Jesus uh, wants to commission us as 
ambassadors of a better kingdom in the midst of this broken world. And when he commissions us to serve as his ambassadors, he endows us with a share of his own dignity. It's a beautiful thing. The Lord subverts our autonomy only to give us a far greater dignity. Now, what does this mean for us? Like, what do we do about all this? Uh, lots and lots of things. Um, but the best place to start is by taking the example of Mary. Verse 19. Mary hears the gospel from the shepherds, and what does she do? She ponders all of it in her heart, which means she thought about it. She thought about it for years, for the rest of her life. And as she thinks about it, the implications come clear, and the same is true for us. Let me throw out some questions for us to ponder. Ask yourself this. Where is it that I am clinging on to autonomy? And what would it look like to surrender that autonomy? So um, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, um, I, you know, it probably sounds just audacious, crazy, to surrender autonomy. Goodness, autonomy is like one of the most important things, right? It's not going to surrender autonomy. Who do you think you are? Well, I might just ask you to consider this. Could it be that your autonomy and mine, as precious as it seems to be, could it be that it's actually just a kind of imitation of a far greater gift, a far better gift that God is just eagerly waiting to give you. And those of us who are Christians consider this. You need to ask the same question. Because all of us have a tendency to carve out little areas of, our, of autonomy in our lives, little spheres where we get to call the shots and we hold Jesus at arm's distance. And those will be the places where sin hides. And so the question is, what is it that is preventing you from surrendering full comprehensive autonomy in all those little areas to Jesus Christ? And again, I can imagine somebody saying, you're crazy. You're, how in the world is it a good idea to even consider surrendering autonomy? Well, that's a good question. Consider this. Very often, we're afraid uh, to surrender autonomy for a very, very good reason. And the very, very good reason is that um, surrendering autonomy uh, makes us vulnerable to oppression, right? And that's a reasonable fear because the world is full of Caesars. Don't ever trust them. On the other hand... When you look at Jesus, though, you'll find that Jesus is not one of those people. Jesus is not Caesar. Jesus does not come to oppress. He comes to liberate. Look back at the reading. Do you notice the sign that the angels give the shepherds? Sign is always an important word in the Bible. In verse 12, the angels tell the shepherds, you're going to find the world's true king, and you're going to know he's the real king when you find a kid swaddled up in a manger. Now, why in the what's with the swaddling? I mean, all the, all the kids are swaddled. What's with the swaddling? You swa Do you know what swaddling is when you wrap up a kid, if you don't know? 
swaddling, you swaddle a kid. All the parents are like, oh, I know. Um, when you, when you swaddle a kid because the kid is vulnerable. You swaddle the kid in part to protect the child, to keep warm, but also to protect the kid. The kid has no autonomy. And in a remarkable way, Jesus Christ is God become human. God who gives up his autonomy in a way. He becomes vulnerable. And eventually that vulnerability climaxes when he's oppressed to the point of someone very much like Caesar who pins him up on a cross. Now, I tell you today, do not trust just anybody. But if you find somebody who's willing to become vulnerable for you, if you find somebody who's willing to suffer for you, that's somebody that you can trust. Jesus gave his life and then rose again so that he could give you a dignity that you can never lose. And his resurrection means he's the king forever and he's the king right now. He's the king uniquely that you can trust. He's the king uniquely that you can love. And you can see this in this reading because do you notice all the joy? The angels break out in song, glory to God in the highest. And the shepherds, because the shepherds are always echoing the angels, the shepherds do the same thing at the end. They break forth in praise and song. Why do they praise? Because they found a God whom they can trust. They found a God whom they can love. They found a God for whom uh, trusting him and loving him becomes the animating center of their joy. And all of this means that Jesus is the one you don't need to fear and you can surrender to. But when you surrender, you also get to take up a whole new dignity. And that's the last thing to ponder. Um, all of us, am I wrong? All of us have a deep desire um, to do something that matters, to, to, to achieve something, um, to, to find some sort of grand purpose. Um, Yuval Harari says that very often we trade away meaning in exchange for power, but we've never lost the desire for that meaning. And Jesus is a king who dignifies all of his people. Jesus is a king who shares something of his own dignity with us as he commissions us to be his ambassadors in the world. And that means you can ask yourself this question. How would my life change if my highest ambition came to be representing Jesus in every sphere of my life? What would, it, what would change? Here at Emmanuel, we call that reflecting the beauty of Jesus Christ or describing the beauty of Jesus Christ. But think about it. If you became a ambassador and a representative of Jesus in every sphere of your life, how would that change your work and your career goals? How would that reframe the way you think about your industry and interpret its trends? How would that reframe your uh, relationships and the decisions that you make in them? How would being a representative of Jesus within this world reframe the way you treat people whom you have good reason to hate? and your cultural opponents? How would it reframe the way you consume and spend and save and give? And of course, what would it look like for us to become a people who are skilled in describing Jesus and his gospel in such a way that people can hear it? 
Emmanuel, uh, this story is not just sentimentality. It's about a gospel that subverts in order to exalt. It undermines our autonomy, but it amplifies a new dignity. So look at Jesus, surrender to him. That is the counterintuitive path to freedom. Glorify him and love him and then share in his dignity as you live as ambassadors of a better kingdom in the midst of this broken world. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.